Welcome to King Solomon and the Stoics, a project of denverkolel.org. I'm Shmueli Halpern. Thank you for joining. In this subject, we're going to see how Solomon was troubled by a lack of confidence in his successor. He knows that he labored an entire life to build a kingdom, to amass great wealth, and he doesn't know if his successor is going to be a wise person or a fool. He doesn't know if they're going to continue his life's work and mission, or they're going to ruin and destroy everything he built. And historically, we know that Solomon's fears were well-founded. His successor and son, Rehavam, was advised by the elders of his time to take it easy on the people when he took over the throne and give them a tax break and show them that he's a benevolent king and begin his reign in that fashion and win the people over. And his young friends, his young advisors told him, no, you need to come across confident, you need to be strong with the people, which is what he did. And it did not go over well. Yeruvim ben Avot broke away with 10 out of the 12 tribes. And that began a tremendous rift in the Jewish people. Several generations later, the Assyrian king carted off most of those 10 tribes. And we haven't heard from them until this very day, according to Talmudic tradition, at least in one opinion. So Rechavam Salman's son broke, ruined, destroyed the unity, the nation, the prosperity that Solomon created. And so his fears were well-founded. And Solomon relates this problem. He says, Thus I hated all my achievements laboring under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who succeeds me, and who knows, knows whether he will be wise or foolish. And he will have control of all my possessions for which I toiled, and have shown myself wise beneath the sun. This too is futility. He continues and says, So I turned my heart to despair of all that I achieved by laboring under the sun. For there is a man who labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must give over his portion to one who has not toiled for it. This, too, is futility and a great evil. Solomon is troubled by this. What's the purpose of going ahead and working and amassing a fortune? If we, It's going to go to a person who doesn't appreciate it. It's going to go to a person who will not have the same values as I. Troubles, this troubles Solomon to a tremendous, tremendous degree. Not only that, he says, For what has a man of all his toil and stress in which he labors beneath the sun? For all his days are painful, and his business is a vexation. Even at night, his mind has no rest. This, too, is futility. You know, there's a fascinating thing about a human being, that when we have purpose, when we have meaning, we can withstand troubles. We can go through tremendous pain. When you know that you're winning the marathon, you can run even though it hurts. But not knowing where all his toil is going, where his life achievements headed after he passes away, Solomon is troubled also by the stresses of daily life, by the frustration of his plans. He says, I can't deal with that if I don't know the general purpose of all my endeavors. Where is this all headed? Where is it all going? He turns his heart to despair. The commentaries explain his heart is Solomon's heart, is a heart of wisdom. Even the wisdom of Solomon cannot guarantee that his successor will be a wise man. And it turns to despair. The Hebrew word for yosh, despair, is the opposite of the words ish, a man. It turns Solomon, the great Solomon, into a weak person. It turns his heart into despair. It turns him to weakness. That's what these thoughts do to Solomon. The verses go on to say, 
It is, is it not good for man that he eats and drinks and shows his soul satisfaction in his labor? And even that, I perceive, is from the hand of God. For who should eat and who should make haste except me? To the man who pleases him, he has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the urge to gather and amass, that he may give it over to the one who is pleasing to God. That too is futility and a vexation of spirit. And that's the end of chapter 2. Solomon contrasts a man who eats and drinks and shows his soul satisfaction in his labor. He appreciates what he has. He enjoys it. And the commentaries explain he uses it to help others. He shears his blessings, whether they're physical blessings of money, whether they're blessings of family, whether they're blessings of talent. He enjoys them and he shears them, and he therefore enjoys them even more. But the Mitsudis, one of the great commentaries, say, who does that? How many people actually use their blessings both for their own benefit and to benefit others thereby enjoying them even more how many people do that so many of us just chase one pleasure to the next and as the sages say one who amasses 100 only wants 200 and the greater we earn the greater our earning power the greater our wanting power and the cycle just continues. We raise our standard of living and we just want more and more and more and more. Why is it? Why can't we simply be satisfied? Why can't we use our money to enjoy and to help others and enjoy that ability to help others? Why are there so few people who do wealth properly? And the Mitzvah explains that the verses themselves say, this is from the hand of God. It's a gift of God to be able to live properly. It's a gift of God to be able to manage your wealth properly. Only one who earned God's favor merits the great gift of a proper life. And the Maral explains in a fascinating essay that when a person becomes wise, or a person gains strength of character. It, it, it's part and parcel of the person. It becomes one with his personality. Those gains and acquisitions are eternal. They're part of who you are. But when a person gains possessions, a person gains money, it doesn't necessarily define the person in a different way. The person may be the same, but their bank account is bigger. In fact, as we mentioned a moment ago, their needs may just have grown, and that's it. All that they've gained is in fact a loss. All that they've gained is a greater need than they had before. That is one type of person. But there is another type of person. There's a person who realizes that everything he has is for a purpose. And it fills a need. It fills a lack and when he has it, he enjoys it, he realizes that it's an opportunity for him to appreciate the gift of God. It's an opportunity for him to appreciate the love of his Creator. A person who lives that way, his wealth becomes part and parcel of who he is because it stands him on his feet. It gives him a sense of appreciation for his Creator. It builds his connection to God Almighty and therefore his money has fulfillment. It has a purpose. And since it has a purpose and a place, it sticks around. This type of wealth stays. It doesn't just leave. It doesn't just go from one person to another, like money so often does. And the cycle of life, and people get rich, and sometimes they lose it all. No, this person who appreciates the wealth for what it truly is, 
opportunity to appreciate God's love for him, that person can hope to hold on to that money. That person can hope that the money is there for a good reason, not for his ruin, like it sometimes is the case where great wealth just brings great ruin in its wake. And that's the level of someone who appreciates the gift. He appreciates the gift, and the morale says that the sages tell us one who benefits from the work of his hands is worthy, can he's guaranteed a portion of the world to come, because the world to come is a place where the ultimate person comes out. It's a place where man's essence is really expressed in the fullest extent of the word. And one who benefits from the work of his hand shows, one who enjoys what he has, shows that it's part of him. He shows that he doesn't have just extra things. He's not a man walking around on a summer day with seven coats. His wealth is not an extraneous thing that's just an appendage. It's just piling on and just bogging him down. No, he's able to enjoy it. It's part of who he is. It's part of his relationship with his creator. It's part of his ability to provide for his family. It's part of his ability to do kindness and acts of charity. That type of person, the person who appreciates his wealth in that sense, in that way, he enjoys it and it sticks around and it will have fulfillment. That's the proper way to approach wealth. The morale goes on to say, the sages tell us, if a person has 11 fingers, it's as if they have nine. We know that a person with a blemish is unfit for serving in the holy temple in certain acts of service, and one who has nine fingers cannot serve. The sages tell us one who has 11 cannot serve either, because when you have something extra that doesn't belong, it's a blemish. And the same is true about wealth when it is not appreciated properly, not used properly. It's extra. And it can only cause harm. It's a blemish and not a gift. And that's what Solomon's discussing here in, this, in these chapters, in these verses, rather. Now, we might ask ourselves, it's very nice for a person who has great wealth, but what does this have to do with me if I'm a person of modest means? And the answer can be found in the comments of Moshe David Valley in these verses. He sees things from a very different perspective. It's not only discussing wealth, but accomplishment in general. And Ramosha David Valley explains that what Solomon is teaching us is that pain, frustration, anxiety, lack of fulfillment comes when we focus beyond, on, beyond that which we need to focus on. I want to tell you a fascinating, very powerful story about empathy that brings out this point. Rabbi Moshe Heyman, director of the Denver Community Kolal, relates that he once interacted with one of the greatest leaders of Orthodox Jewry in the United States, Rabbi Matisio Salman of the Lakewood Yeshiva, the spiritual dean of the Lakewood Yeshiva, Beth Medrash Kavah. And Rabbi Salman was a person who was orphaned at a young age and therefore made it his business to always comfort a widow or orphans in any situation that arose where someone lost a parent at a young age, Rabbi Salman made it his business to be present to provide support for the family. And Rabbi Haman asked Rabbi Solomon, how do you do it? How do you do this day in, day out? How can you bear to hear and to be present in the face of such suffering? And how can you keep doing this and not be emotionally broken? And Rabbi Solomon told him an incredibly powerful answer. He said, I focus always on what I can do 
to make the situation better. He said so many people trip up when they get involved in empathy and they start putting their, themselves in the other person's shoes. And they start thinking, how would I feel in this case? And they start envisioning and imagining themselves in this predicament. And they start thinking about what they're going to say to the person and how they're going to look. Are they going to come across looking empathetic? Are they going to come across looking smart? That is a mistake, says Rabbi Solomon. The focus is not you. The focus is on what you can provide. And when you remain absolutely focused on your value, on what you can give, what you can do to alleviate the suffering, you're not broken by the suffering. You're not taking your empathy too far. We have to recognize that there's a world that we inhabit that is our world. And in that world, we can change the world, the entire world. When we change our world, we impact the entire world. But when we live in someone else's world, we're practically useless. And it's incredibly fascinating how the, the typical, more basic approach to these verses, which deals with amassing wealth and the worry of where that money's going to go after a person's death, it has so much to do with the same idea that Rabbi Vali sees in these verses, which is the, just the general concept of worrying about what's going to be worrying about what's going to be with the next generation, worrying about what's going to be with someone on the other side of the world. And we have to have empathy. We have to care. But we have to recognize that we have limits. And that when we focus on that which we actually have an ability to change, we actually have something to do, we can change the world. But so often, in the context of the simple reading of the verses, we're worried about the next generation. The person amassing the wealth is not living in the present. The wealth, all of his life is busy. He's in the office until 2 o'clock in the morning and he's back there at 6. He is busy his entire life amassing wealth that he doesn't use, he doesn't enjoy. Whose life is he living? Not his. He may be living his children's life, but he doesn't know what his children's life looks like. He doesn't know if he wants to be living that life. He's certainly not living his own life. When he's busy amassing things he has no use for, they'll never be part of him. That's not living your life. And when it comes to empathy, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to frustration about things that are not directly related to you, when you could do something about it, when it's you or someone close to you that you have ability, or whether you can offer up a prayer, or whether you can donate a few dollars, you have the ability to do that, you should feel empathy, you should feel sympathy, you should go ahead and you should act. But beyond that, we have to recognize that we're living in a life that's not ours. How often are, do we put our minds in a world that does not belong to us? And then, we are not very helpful, we're not very useful, we're not very impactful. Sofarno says a fascinating thing. Sofarno writes that we say every day in the Shema, you should eat and be satisfied and bless Hashem. Sefarno says it does not say you should eat and you should be satisfied and you should inherit to your children. You should give to your children after you die. That's not part of what a person needs to do in this life. Now, this is obviously a controversial subject, but it's important to recognize we need to live our lives, not someone else's life. And so we should endeavor to work, we should endeavor to acquire and to amass fortunes only if it has a place. If it has no place, it's an extra limb, it's an appendage, it will only weigh us down. And the same is true in projects and endeavors and hobbies. Let us clean up our lives. Let us focus. 
let us go and see what is really me what is my life and what am i doing only to please someone else it's not important what am i doing just because of habit let's use our time our time is our life it's a gift we can impact the world we can change ourselves we can grow we can do incredible things that are eternal because the human being is eternal the human soul is eternal let's make our acquisitions let's make our time last forever and ever thank you for listening have a wonderful rest of your week god willing next episode we'll delve into the story of hanukkah a bit and we'll contrast greek philosophy with the wisdom of the oral law it's a fascinating subject that is a logical continuation of what we've been discussing it has to do with chapter 2 in ecclesiastes and it has to do with this concept of the eternity of the soul of the fact that a person has a soul and the work that they do the expressions that they bring the soul in this life through good acts through character development through intellectual advancement torah study connection with god those things build the soul into an eternal being and we'll delve into that and we'll see where torah and greek philosophy differ it's a fascinating subject I hope that you can join me again. All the very best, and thank you so much for listening.